0: Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Welcome. Pediatric Grand Rounds. It's February 13th, 2018. Thank you for making it in, braving the snow uh, and the and the weather. So, Roche, we have more than 5 people for you and more more rolling in. So, um, Uh, Next week, we will have a visiting speaker from from Stanford. And um, on Tuesday, if you happen to be around, it's it's vacation week. There is going to be a visit and a presentation by Duncan Brands, who is uh, a Dunkin' Donuts has been a big sponsor of Chad, inclusive of a service, their their ambassador, who is a service dog. So watch out uh, for Tuesday, I think late morning, 10 a.m., probably up at Molly's place. Um, if you want to see the visits. So, today we've got a, um, a stellar lineup from the Dean's Office at uh, the Geisel School of Medicine presenting. Two of our speakers have um, presented here within the past two years, Grand Rounds, uh, most recently Dr. Stephanie White, uh, as you know, is Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion at the Geisel School. Julie Kim, who is the Associate Professor of Pediatrics, (laughs) Chief of the Section of Pediatric Hematology, Oncology, and the Chair of the Committee on Student Performance and Conduct at the Geisel School of Medicine. And um, new to our podium is Dr. Rashini Pinto-Powell, who is associate professor of medicine and associate professor of medical education, uh, a graduate of um, the University of Bombay and the Ross University School of Medicine. She has um, she has risen here also to the role of the associate dean for students and admissions at the Geisel School. So we we uh, we raided the rope ferry this morning, and they are going to give a joint. Presentation, I believe. I don't know if you're going to do it in sequence, but uh, hopefully, you filled out your pre-visit, uh, pre-session questionnaires online, and and we look forward to a, an interactive session. Good morning,
1: everyone. Oh, there we go. So. Um, as we get started here, we're going to kind of be doing a little bit of a roundtable, and this will be an interactive session. Um, we want to start by saying that we have no disclosures, so while all of us are coming from the dean's office, we're not bringing bags of money with us. Um, our objectives today are to differentiate the types of bias, and, you know, we've we've had these conversations before in PEDS Grand Rounds. And, um, when Dr. Danika Setterstrom came and did a noon conference for residents in terms of how do we deal with patient bias and how do we um, serve as allies for each other? How do we serve as support systems for each other when things like this occur? And so as we go through these objectives, we would like to understand kind of what the national and local trends Um, of bias towards providers are, explain what DHMC's bias policy is. There is um, a full bias policy Um, available online and we'll show you how to access that so that you know as employees what's covered within that. But then we really want to spend more time helping to develop some of the skills because it's all well and good to sit here and to talk about the literature and to talk about in theory what we would do. (laughs) But it's very different when you face an experience in person and, and because these things catch you off guard, um, you kind of, you know, you never want to practice for them because hopefully they're so infrequent that you don't need those skills. But yet at the same time, because they catch you off guard, you do kind of need to practice to figure out what you would say um, at the time and, and how to support those around you. And so as Dr. Loud mentioned, hopefully you had a chance to complete the Poll Everywhere Data and so Roshini is gonna come up and explain our data. And We actually had a really good response rate.
2: Good morning. Thank you so much. Um, I actually really am impressed to see so many people here. Thankfully, the weather cooperated and slowed down enough to clear the driveways and the roadways. And I hope your travel in was safe. Um, So just a a word more before I talk about the poll. The interest of the three of us getting together started about two years ago uh, when we started talking about um, sort of systems in place in the hospital to um, acknowledge for our uh, providers and um, supervisors to realize that our institution does indeed support uh, us responding in a positive way to patient bias in a helpful way. Um, and so we kind of got together and created a, a flow diagram, which we will share with you, with, uh, Dr. Kim will share with you later. Um, but the reason for sharing some of this data, the re- I was so impressed, 70, I think 70 something uh, folks filled out the survey prior to, um, to the session, so it was really wonderful. Uh, but the idea was to actually just reflect and say, how many of us have experienced patient bias? And we hoped that by stimulating this reflection that you would be uh, even more interested in developing those skills. So our, our, some of it is data sharing, but a lot of it is skill building in this session today. We will share with you both your data quickly And then we will also share with you some data that um, Allison Wilcox, a third-year resident who had planned to come, but unfortunately the weather, she's watching live at home. um, And I actually sent um, a survey to third- and fourth-year students at the Geisel School of Medicine who are in our programs, and actually all the residents, all the residents um, in the different residencies at DHMC, and I'll share with you their data, and you will see how remarkably similar it is, which is very interesting. So here's your data very quickly. And um, I I just selected a few. I know there were a lot more questions, but I'm just going to share with you the ones that um, uh, we think was useful. So this is your data, 76 of you. 77 of you answered these two questions. In the clinical setting, has your role ever been misidentified or misunderstood? And you could see it's a fairly large percentage, 80% of people roughly. How many times have you been misidentified? Again, 50% said... Um, many times, more than five times in the course of your time here. If you look at the, for which of the roles have you been misidentified? Again, a large number of you answered this question. And although this was mixed for both um, uh, <coughs> physicians, providers, and other staff, you will see responses, I'm a physician, but it was misidentified as a medical student 7% of the time. I'm a medical student physician, misidentified as a nurse, and that, that's quite, quite a bit of the time, 31% of the time. Um, medical student, a physician, but identified as a custodian or other non-clinical 7% of the time. So this happens actually, unfortunately, a little bit more than we think. Um, and the other reason for sharing this is to see that you're not alone. There are many more people experiencing this. Um, to which of the following do you believe misidentification was related? And again, I want you to watch um, this uh, table was from poll everywhere, so I didn't recreate the table. But when we show you national data, we want you to notice how similar. Um, a lot of people, were mis- they think they were misidentified because of their age, gender, race or ethnicity, um, and physical attributes, height, weight, um, <laughs> attire, and tattoos. In your experience as a healthcare provider, has a patient ever refused to allow your participation in their care or requested another provider? Again, 50% of the time. 50%. Uh, after being misidentified, and this is another important um, question that you will see national data as well as our local resident and student data. If you have been misidentified, what is the emotional um, response that it elicits from you and does it change your behavior to the patient? Um, and here this data is very slightly different from the national trends, and we could pontificate as to why, and I, I won't say anything right now, but maybe at the end we'll talk about this. Um, about 36% they were moderately affected, and about 50% not affected. Um, the national data and uh, student data is a little higher number of people being affected by this. I can you talk to
1: this, So, we started with some of the data, but what exactly are we talking about here? Um, As a follow-up to some of our previous conversations, we want to just take a step back and do some definitions. And so when we talk about biases, there are explicit and implicit biases. And sometimes you'll hear of implicit biases called unconscious bias. And so these are negative thoughts or attitudes about one group of people. And the frustrating thing is that some of you may have taken one of the implicit association tests from Harvard. They have them on lots of different things from race to weight to gender to age and Oftentimes when people take them and reflect upon them, they say, okay, so these are just these subconscious things that I feel about these other people, and I don't know where they came from, and I don't think that this really describes me, but there's clearly nothing I can do about it because this is just who I am, right? And it's kind of frustrating because there aren't easy skills that can be implemented immediately to fix these things. Like, all of this takes lots of reflection, it takes time, it takes intentionality, and that part, especially for some of us, is more frustrating than others, where we just kind of want an easy button and then have all of this be fixed. Um, So the AAMC describes, uh, they define implicit biases as the attitudes or stereotypes that are outside of our awareness, but nonetheless affect our understanding, our interactions, and our decisions. And so in my last Grand Rounds, we talked about some of the race-based health disparities um, amongst, like, African-American patients and how that experience may be based on some of the implicit biases that we have as, as providers, whereas explicit bias is defined as individuals are aware that they have these thoughts or these prejudices or these stereotypes about other people, and yet they're okay with that. And so oftentimes we talk about implicit bias because we do need to do a lot of work with it. But what we're going to talk about today is more of the explicit things. And so patients being very clear that they don't want X person to take care of them because of some reason. And that's the part of medicine that we haven't really talked about. You know, we give a lot of ourselves to this profession, and we need to also be respected in our workplace. So, what function do biases serve? I mean, there's, there's actually a rationale of why we make these stereotypes. We start developing these associations at very young ages, and even six-month-olds are starting to sort things out and put things in different categories. And so, biases are a way of ensuring our survival. They're an automatic response. If you saw someone walking down the street with a knife, you wouldn't assume that there was a birthday cake behind you that they were going to cut, right? <laughs> And so we have these associations for reasons. However, sometimes those reasons are not really justified. They may be based on some experiences they've had that the person has had, but it doesn't apply to a whole group or whole population of people. And then there's also the tendency for us to feel more comfortable with people that look like us, and so we tend to group ourselves around people that have similar interests. And we may say, like, "Oh, well, I can just talk to them about things easier. We all like doing X activity, and so that makes it easy." Um, and this this is part of human nature. <clears throat> so we see our world through our own social lens, and this is the part where we have to be reflective in what that social lens looks like. And the next set of slides is adapted from um, the AAMC and I have permission to use them. And I thought that it kind of lays out a very interesting way of understanding what this could look like. And so our social lens is influenced by a number of things. It's influenced by our culture, our group who we associate with, but then there are also individual parts of us that, um, that influence the way that we see things, so whether that's our individual experiences, whether that's our immediate family, and the, the theories or thought processes that have been passed down from our parents. And then there are also institutional cultures. And so as we are employees of DH, you know, what sorts of institutional things may impact the way that we treat patients? So, you know, someone can see this roller coaster and think about going to um, Six Flags and one person would say, oh, my gosh, that looks so fun and exciting and it'll be exhilarating and I can't wait to ride it. Whereas the other person is like, oh, my gosh, (laughs) that looks really scary and I'm probably going to get nauseous. And I don't really know if it's safe. It looks a little dangerous. Like, I wonder if the seatbelt's going to fasten appropriately. And so... Whatever reason we have these thoughts, there are different people that would approach this ride differently, but what actually is there? None of those things are there, but what's there is steel, some paint, some nuts and bolts that are hopefully um, very tightly screwed, (laughs) and a curved design that hopefully some really smart engineers have been thoughtful (laughs) about in their approach to creating it. And so this applies to people as well. Right? So what one person may see as a well-groomed, intelligent, expressive, and stoic person, another person may see, oh, that's one of those people. Or they may be socially inept, or they may be rebellious, or they may be unfriendly. But nothing about this person actually says any of those things. All you see is hair and earrings, and he has glasses, and he's not really making any facial expressions, it's more of just a neutral expression. But depending on which side of that picture we're on, you know, what life experience have led us to coming up with some of those associations that we may make when we see this person. And so as we, as we think about how this applies to ourselves, we also have to think patients approach us in the same way. And so, if they see a medical student coming into a room and they associate their age with inexperience and therefore um not great knowledge base or not being able to take care of them you know how does that script continue to unfold that then impacts the information that they share with that person that impacts the thoughts that they have about that person likewise gender um, you know, depending on who enters the room, they're going to have thoughts about what that person is capable of. But what's actually there is just a person, right, who is trying to provide the best care for that patient. And so Dr. pinto is going to come back up and talk about the most common types of bias. We'll move on.
2: So again, as I said, uh, we started off by sharing your own data. Um, and then some um norming definitions so we're all on the same page with what we're talking about. Um, and for so now I wanted to share some national data and then like the local data to talk about about our residents and students. And so this was a um, a survey in 2017 done by Medscape and a WebMD. And they surveyed, I can show you the details if you want to, but they roughly looked at um, uh, I think the Metscape data um, had about 800 people reply. The WebMD data was about 1,100 people reply. And here were the most commonly reported types of biases. And uh, although uh, your data is not arranged in nice order to see it, you can recognize the same sorts of um, uh, things or um, people thought that they were uh, biased against because of their age. Ethnicity, gender, race, religion, <coughs> personal characteristics, uh, political views, medical education outside of the U.S., and sexual orientation. So it's actually very similar when you look at it the national data um, and your own local data as well as ours. Um, and 59% actually uh, felt that they had heard an offensive remark, we was only about five patients, which is really quite remarkable. The study kind of pulled out certain specific data, showed that 41% of female doctors say that a person has made an offensive remark about their gender in front 30% of African American doctors say that um, they have heard an offensive remark about their ethnicity once again in their presence, which is really amazing. 43% of Asian doctors similarly say the same. And other studies, this was another article showing that this is actually quite widespread and uh, different races experience the same um, sense. This was a, an article showing religious identity workplace discrimination in American Muslim physicians. Again, with a fairly good response rate saying 10% of patients refused to accept care from them. So this is really um, remarkably similar when you look at the data across the country, nationally, and locally. So here is the data I promised to show you, and this is important because, again, when we read this in articles and magazines and we think it exists somewhere else, not here, um, it doesn't exist here. So this was a survey we sent to all residents. I said all the residents in DH. So whether it's pediatrics or medicine, surgery, a GYN, and, and then our student data. We really sent this to our third and fourth year students, and we got a really good response rate from both groups. Um, the first, um, so, 89% of residents and 87% of students <coughs> said that uh, they had been refused care. The patient refused to have them involved in care at some point during their training here. Um, the majority thought that it was because of their training level. Now, this is not particularly surprising, maybe, in, in terms of our trainees, but the number that thought that it was because of gender, age, race, and physical characteristics is remarkably similar when you think about your old data and the national data. <coughs> Dr. Kim is going to come and lead us to a case.
3: So this is actually a case that occurred here to me and to some other, other people in the room here, and some people will recognize this case because everyone who was involved is here. Um, <laughs> so a couple years ago, and this is kind of what started this process of what do we have in place at Dartmouth um, to deal with cases like this. So a couple years ago, I was working with a resident who I will not call out, but she was not a Caucasian resident. And um, the child was seen in my clinic, and the, my, my, the resident went in, and the resident came out and said, this family wants a different doctor, um, so I went in. The family says they want a different doctor. Uh, this child had a neck mass, so I called our pediatric surgeon, who I won't name out, but doesn't does it has a little bit of an accent in case you can't <laughs> figure it out. And the family kept <laughs> the family kept saying, "I want a different doctor." So, just as an exercise, how would you respond to this? Just throw out some explanations here. It's not a it's just a thought process. If somebody you walked into the room and said and you might not be you might be Caucasian. You don't know why they're saying I want a different doctor. Any thoughts?
4: I'd ask them why.
3: Okay. I I just want a different doctor. This is not the type of doctor I expected to see. Well, that's so, Tell me more. Uh, I, I came here expecting to see somebody else. I mean, they were very vague about it. And that's often how these responses are. Um, I guess I would just say I'm going to need more information. I can't help you unless I understand better what's going on. Okay, let's say it's an uh, explicit uh, I want somebody who looks like me. How do you respond? <laughs> I mean, I find it, it, so it's interesting. So a lot of people, when we did the poll, everywhere response, we actually had 75% of people who responded say, I feel comfortable responding to this question. <laughs> but here we are, silence. So how would you respond to that? I mean, no one really knows.
5: I hear what
1: you're saying. Unfortunately, no one else is available right now. Can you, let's deal with why we're here and then you can help arrange something different if that's what you want
2: I might say something more along the lines of, we select
5: your physician based on experience and, and appropriateness of the physician. We don't select your physician based on looking like you.
4: So,
2: do we have to do right now, but we will have to talk about it more. But I, I don't think
4: my response would be, look oh, Yeah. Or you come to an
5: academic medical center, we all, you know, everyone here has the appropriate level of training to care for your particular disorder, and I'm the most appropriate person to be seeing you today to take care of your child. Yeah,
3: so I think it's good that we think about it, because I think those are very good answers, but sometimes if you're just faced with this for the first time, or you're the supervisor dealing with an an intern or a resident who's dealing with this for the first time, you might not have a stock answer, which is why we want to work through this together.
5: I think, Julie, one of the things that's
4: challenging, obviously, they came to see you because they're scared. Their children have cancer, and we know that they need to establish a big trust and a bond with their physician in order to get good care, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's really hard. I will say I'm not one of the people who answered. I feel super comfortable dealing with it because I think it's really awkward um, because we do want to empower this family and this, this scared family who's coming to see the cancer doctor to care for their children as best as possible.
3: Yeah. Huh. So we'll give you some tools down the road. We'll go through this case again. Yes, what I said, I said,
6: Well, I can see if my father is here, yes. and because I want trust, and if they don't trust me because I have an accent, then I cannot take care of it right. because I think I'm going to cut their neck open. And I want them to trust me. Yes. If something bad happens, they're going to go further. And I think is it the right answer or not? I don't think so. But on the other hand, if you cannot build trust because of this worry of a difference, then I have the luxury to have. Uh, with an undergrad an that
4: doesn't have that. <laughs> <laughs> we don't all have
6: that. Part you know? <laughs> of like,
5: oh, <laughs> some, that's that's some that's degree I feel like that's a little bit enabling. <laughs> <a little bit laughs> I I totally yeah, get that, but I had another encounter <laughs> I, where I said I was really comfortable. I didn't say I was going to Yeah. Paul. I think that's different on a
6: resident or medical student level. Yeah. Because at at some point, you know. You you have your training. We're still training and we miss out on those experiences if you keep saying, Okay, let me try to find something. <coughs> yeah. I, yeah. I agree, I was in a common thing with people with Moscow on the on the arm. Yeah. I, yeah. Miss I miss that I training. I do not want to be involved in violence and sometimes it can actually degenerate. So that's, that's I you want yeah. to be exposed to certain things, but not in the worst that and I'm going to
3: move us along so we can keep. Because we, we're going to readdress this case afterwards, too. But Jill, did you have something you wanted to well, say?
4: I was just going to say I, I'm willing to put it out there. I, my reaction is anger.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think this is good. So, what is the emotional imp- and she's not a plant. Um, what is the emotional impact? What is the emotional impact to people when this happens? And this actually mirrors uh, the the what's happening at Geisel. This is national data. Um, and when I, I was actually quite upset with this, and I'm sure everybody who was involved was quite upset with this. So what do you do when you're, you're in this situation? Quite frankly, this was about three years ago, two or three years ago. That was the first time that that had happened to me uh, at, at Geisel. And most of the time, uh, or this explicitly, I should say, that it happened to me. I personally think there was something politically that changed in the environment that allowed that to happen, <laughs> but um, that was the first time, and I've had some incidents since then. Um, but prior to that, for the... T- Twelve years before that, I had never really had an incident that I felt completely offended. Uh, did you want to? It's okay to see. It's so again, this is the the d- yes, this is the data from Geisel here. So uh, people are very affected. This is very dis- disturbing and upsetting to people. Uh, and it's hard to deal with because, you know, as a medical society, as a medical culture, we are a culture of co- accommodation. So whenever we do shared decision-making, there is some act of accommodation that occurs with our patients. Uh, there was a study in 2010 where they uh, people at University of Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Rochester, queried almost 200 ED physicians about what happens when a patient comes in and asks for a different provider than the the provider in front of them. Um, So they investigated how the providers responded. It turned out that female providers are more likely to respond to these requests. Uh, That doesn't surprise me all that much. And the requests were more frequently granted if it was a woman who was making the request or a minority or a Muslim person. And then interestingly to me, um, the ED providers felt like they were still getting just as good care if they were getting care from some the requested provider if they made a request in the change, uh, and there was no difference in care. However, studies have shown that from the patient's point of view, they feel like they're getting better care if they get the provider that they request. So it's a very big disconnect that we still have to explore. Is this kind of accommodation ethical, and is it even legal? I don't know. So this is something that people are still exploring. As I said, um, minority patients who, when they looked into this, minority patients who get the provider that they request feel like they are getting better care. They feel it's a more trustworthy uh, patient-provider relationship. Um, Also, the, the the legality of this is very questionable. So, the 1964 uh, Civil Rights Act, which preve- pre- prevented discrimination, actually had a title in there, Title II, which allowed for, uh, which prohibited customers from requesting having discriminatory requests, but it did not include hospitals in that setting. So, that's an exempt location for this. So, it, it, it doesn't fall in the law completely. The American Medical Association does have a code of ethics, however, that says that providers do have the right to refuse to provide care for a patient if the patient is disruptive. So doctors have the right to terminate the patient-physician relationship with a patient who uses derogatory language or acts in a prejudicial manner. I was going to say presidential, not Prejudicial manner only if the patient will not modify the conduct. In such cases, the physician should arrange the transfer of care. So it is allowed, so we have to protect ourselves, too, and it is not wrong to protect ourselves when we, our provider is doing this. So what happens when we actually report? It's hard to know. So two, three years ago when this happened, I wasn't quite sure where I was supposed to report this to and what was going to happen. Um, a lot of times, 31% of the time, somebody says, I'll take care of the patient and we'll transfer it to somebody else. So somebody says, okay, this person being explicitly biased, We'll find somebody else to take care of it. you don't have to take care of it. Uh, somebody at an authority, 22 percent of the time asked the patient to leave the practice. That becomes much harder in a place like Dartmouth, where we're the only pediatric oncology providers in the state. So what do you do in that situation? Twenty um, percent of f- physicians were asked to keep taking care of this patient, which I just find appalling. 11 uh, percent someone else took over care, which is very similar to the transferring of the patient, and then 16 percent is just listed as other. So when you poll physicians about what they're supposed to do and do you feel confident that your institution knows what they're supposed to do, these are the answers that we get. 60% of physicians, and I was one of them, didn't know if their, phys- their institution had a formal policy about bias. And then 85% say their institutions didn't provide any training about how to deal with bias. So that's where we came in, the three of us, and try- are trying to correct this. Dartmouth does have a bias policy. Uh, we, if you go to um, D- the Dartmouth website and look under resident, it's interesting to me, it's under residents and fellows. So you actually have to know where to search. So it's not so easily found. But there's institutional policies about what to do. And there's institutional policies, not specifically about bias, but about uh, equal opportunity employment and non-discrimination and disruptive behavior. So a biased patient here is considered to be a disruptive patient. Uh, but there's no specifically about bias. We have, uh, when this happened to me, I did go to our human relations de- department and risk management. And everyone here, I have to say, has been very um, interested in trying to help this and try to figure out solutions with this. So I think we have a very open administration to work with us. So if you're in this situation, you've spoken to your direct supervisor and not gotten the answer that you wanted, um, keep going up because I think ultimately you will find a, a group of people who is very interested in making this work here. So, what what did we do to try to develop some plans for you? Uh, if you haven't gotten a handout we, we developed an algorithm. Uh, does everyone have one they're outside <clears throat> and we'll go over this, but we actually have two it 's a double sided piece of paper. One is what do you do if you're the provider who's experiencing bias against yourself and we've made an algorithm, and one is if you're the supervisor and we felt it was important to be to give some examples for supervisory roles as well and we'll go through this in more detail so This is kind of the blow up of what what happens if you're the supervisor. So if you have a patient who's being explicitly or even implicitly and you're not quite sure and you don't know how to respond, these are some tools that you might be able to use to help you figure this out. Um, First of all, I think the most important thing is that you determine whether the patient is stable or not. Because if the patient is unstable and they're being explicitly biased and they are refusing your help, you just really need to say, your, your, this child or this patient needs help, this is an unstable situation, we need to fix the emergency right away and move from there. You have a little bit more leeway if the patient is stable. So, for example, the, the case that we had, the patient was stable with the neck mass. Uh, it was a child who had did not have decision-making capacity because it's a child, so we defer to the parents and use the surrogate. And then we ask the questions, these questions. And these questions are, I think the important thing here is we are not intending to uh, change somebody's opinion here. We are not going to be able to change anybody's opinion in that short encounter, and that's not our goal here. Our goal really is to understand what is going on and get the person to behave in a way that's acceptable to us. So they can keep their thoughts to themselves, just behave. Um, (laughs) It's like talking to your children. So th- these are some of the open-ended questions that we chose to use. Um, why? What concerns you about this provider? That, uh, and how can we help you? We need to know what it is about this provider that makes you feel uncomfortable. And express. I think it's important to say, you know, this does make me a little bit uncomfortable. It feels a little bit like stereotyping or discrimination. You can use whichever word is, uh, you feel is appropriate at the time. The reason I think it's important to actually use this last step is I think it's important for people to other people, the patients and the patient's parents, if it's a child, to recognize that their behavior might not be appropriate and to be called out on that. That's... That's easy to do to avoid and gloss over that, but from from our providers and the the learners who are being discriminated or stereotyped against, I think it's important for those people and myself, part of that group, to know that somebody is standing up for me and calling out this behavior as it could be inappropriate. Then you decide, you have the option to decide whether this behavior is acceptable or unacceptable. Um, And you're probably thinking, well, how is this acceptable behavior at any point? And we're going to talk about that in just a second. If you think that behavior is unacceptable, you're going to limit the unacceptable behavior and redirect. And you are just, again, trying to get them to behave in the appropriate way. Um, you're going to talk about the institution's commitment to care. And this is what I think Sam was talking about. We're an academic institution. Everyone here is well-trained. We have everything in place to take care, provide the best care for you possible uh, and keep going from there. If, you, if the patient is still having some trouble and you're uh, with accepting care from you or still being having some stereotypical or discriminatory behaviors, you can give them their options. You have the right, you have the choice to stay here, but only if you can behave in the appropriate way. If you cannot re- abide by these behavioral principles, then we will help you find another place to get care. So we have in the, I have in the past transferred patients to other institutions because of this, if they're uh, unstable. Um, Personally, I don't think, if they're stable, I mean, personally, I don't think sending the patient to my partner who happens to be white is the appropriate response, because they're going to have to get care from the group of people, and there's no guarantee that that patient, when their family comes on an emergency day or calls in the middle of the night, is not going to get me on the phone. So if they can't accept me as a provider, they're not going to be able to accept the group as a provider, because one-third of the time, I'm going to be the provider, regardless. Um, the other important thing here, I think, is to remember to support the provider. That's the hard part because it's so easy to say, oh, I'm sorry this happened to you and just gloss it under and I'll take care of the patient. Don't worry, you don't have to see the patient. That is not the correct response. You have to take it one step further and ex- express to the provider some support. So like, ask them how they're feeling. Listen. Uh, And the provider who had experienced the the stereotype or the bias, the discrimination, should also know that they can step away from taking care of this patient. And there's no no harm to the patient because you will find a different way to care for this patient. And there's no harm to the provider by shirking their duties. This is not shirking their duties at all. And then you need to develop an appropriate management plan for the patient. I think that one big thing here is to always notify risk management because there is going to be careful documentation that needs to occur if this happens. And even if you do come up with a solution and the patient does behave in an appropriate way, I still think it's important to notify risk management because this issue probably will come up again in some other format with the same patient down the road. So it's important to get them involved early so they can also meet with the families and set parameters as well. And I've had risk management come down and meet with families and say, this is an academic institution. We're happy to take care of you. And also set those parameters. They're an outside uh, group that kind of reinforces what you've just told them. So let's go back to case number two again. Um, it's the child with a neck mass, and we're going to have some scenarios here. So we're going to have, p- have people group up together, uh, at least three people. So somebody's the provider, somebody's the parent, and somebody's a supervisor. Um, and if you want to pass out things, we can. And we're going to give some responses that the parent is going to provide here. And you guys can decide. And this is going to be quick. We really don't want this to take more than five, six, seven minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay i think i'll give everybody like two more minutes okay two more two more minutes everyone <laughs> okay <laughs> I said two (laughs) more Yeah, that'll be right. I said two I gave a two minute (coughs) warning. All right, one more minute
5: folks. <laughs>
3: Are you ready? Or should we give them a couple more minutes?
5: This it's hard to go I I I I I the I <laughs> 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 <laughs>
3: okay let's wrap this up thanks everyone
5: okay I'm
3: gonna I'm gonna ask for some volunteers
5: <clears throat>
3: so so we gave people in this one some prompts about, how to, about what might come up down the road. And I think these prompts were a little bit difficult to respond to for some people. <clears throat> so I would love to hear how some of the groups responded. So if anybody wants to, I'll, I'll start picking on people if they don't volunteer. Uh, if you could read what your prompt is or l- let everyone know what your prompt is, and then un- also discuss what were the questions and how you re- your group responded. Anyone?
5: All right, we'll go. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I going to call um, so,
4: <laughs> The parent is non non caucasian and wanted a provider that was the same race as the family um so uh I just
2: pretend like I am who I am, so we're in the pick so there is no there's no option um and
4: so i keep, I just asked to explore why hmm One of the things that Shilene did really nicely was sort of work on getting to the the root of the issue and then building some really concrete strategies. So Adam identified a concern that they wouldn't be checked on enough because of bias, and Shilene said, well, let's make a schedule. (coughs)
5: Adam was very rational, though.
3: Yeah, Yeah, I think living in this area, uh, you can easily say there's no other providers. The case where we had the (laughs) child with the neck mask, There truly was no other providers at that point. Um, Sarah was out of town. Sarah Chaffee was out of town. And I think Dan was out of town then, too. So they were stuck with who they got. Uh, So it was an easy response. Any other groups?
5: I can go. Um, So ours said, I would like a doctor who understands my religion. Um, So one of the things that we sort of said that we would try and focus on in talking to the family would be, like, we appreciate that your religion is going to be an important part of your care and kind of asking, like, how would you like it to be a part of your care? And then, sort of, focusing, like, we appreciate that, and we can try and work on, like, additional people, like, chaplaincy, that kind of thing. But, like, right now, our job is to focus on the medicine and making sure your child is as healthy as possible. So, mm-hmm. trying to kind of focus more back onto the medicine. Yeah.
4: We have the same one, and it, we might not understand your religion, but we're certainly open to learning about it. It's not like hard style. hmm. Mm
6: hmm. I think
4: Nina and Tori and I had the we would like a provider with more experience and Nina and I were reflecting that at one point, possibly because we were small women without gray hair, we got this a lot and at some <clears> point <throat> it stopped. <laughs> But, there you go. Um, but we're also saying it's true, when you're a younger in training, you have less experience. So there is something to the wisdom of gray hair that provides more education and experience. But as a supervisor now, being able to support, I think, our team, as we have a large team of people, at least in our primary care setting, Nina's a little bit different, care um, for you. But it includes a team of residents, medical students, other people who can bring a different level of experience to your care.
0: Here. So we discussed how we had the same question about a non-Caucasian uh, patient on a non-Caucasian care provider. And a lot of this is situational, I and mean, we can almost hide behind the, the, the reality of not having many non-Caucasian providers to which in, in small section you don't have any other hematology. But it but raises the question of who gets to express their preference and who doesn't, because I know for sure that a patient who calls into our general pediatrics practice who says they're a female patient and doesn't want to see a male provider doesn't have to see a male provider. And I also believe strongly that many of our employees and staff express uh, and are I think increasingly accommodated by not having to see residents in practice that we don't extend to non. They know how to ask that question. And I was well raised that question. And I think as an academic center, that's an enormous bias that we
4: have to tackle. One of the nice things that our institution did is they did put it into the consent form. So that when you get, you get I know it's, but it's there. And I think from an institutional standpoint, that also gives us as supervisors a lot more um, authority from behind the institution to say we are an academic teaching center because it says that you will have learners as part of your oh,
0: I, I, I don't dispute that, ever. no one reads those things <laughs> <watching>. <laughs> no, I'm just, but what I'm, my concern is that, is that the people in this room know how to ask and how to get scheduled with non-residents, yeah, and yeah. they do it. I think it, I don't have data to prove this, but I believe strongly they do it at a higher rate that makes them that courtesy to their patients.
3: Mm-hmm. I think and that's
0: we, true. And, we, and we, re- we, re- we rationalize it by saying, well, be uncomfortable for the residents because it's one of their teachers and blah, 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 blah. But I, I know people who waited longer mm-hmm. to get their first new patient appointment who were employees or new employees here because they wanted to wait for one of us.
1: Mm-hmm. Allison? Yeah, just on this, the training issue with the students
5: and residents, you know, come up for years if you've worked in training settings, I've I have had it work with, with families, and I work in the newborn setting a lot, which we're usually encountering this, but they don't want a student seeing see their new baby or they don't want to touch their, their new baby. I have typically played the, the quality card, that I know the quality of care is higher when I have my team members with me because they ask good questions, and they to um, the wisdom of the team is better, and it doesn't work all but it works more than it doesn't work. So, so
2: try that. I
5: think that's why this issue is so thorny
2: because it's actually not a clean yes or no answer. Yes, it's unacceptable or acceptable. I think a lot of times, and it has come out in our discussion here, it's about seeking to understand um, and and not sort of just judging or um, trying to be preachy. Because there are times absolutely, that the literature is so amazing in this because um, if you actually reflect, there are times we give it all the time. Mm-hmm. And the literature reflects that. The question is, when does it become a problem, and when does it um, affect, I think, our trainees is what we are going for? Because Rito's example was perfect. And, and we don't know this for sure, but the data that I showed you, the percentage of emotional impact in, in this um group was slightly less than in residents and trainees. And is that because as we grow in our sort of confidence that we're able to I'm not that 30, 36% is still pretty bad, but uh, is it we're able to handle it better? trainees actually get really affected and they can change their path in medicine, which is a problem. Could one of
0: you address more some of the um, acceptable
2: um Types of, uh, of reasons, I'm thinking particularly of people who've been traumatized, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which sometimes can be hard to get at. I mean, I, I was once assaulted by a, a gang of people who were all dressed in the same way, and it, it was very, very upsetting to be physically assaulted. So when I was, for many years, when I would see people dressed in that fashion, I would um, begin to tremble and shake, and I, I, I couldn't control it.
3: Um, so, you know,
2: I'm just sort of, but I wouldn't talk about that very
3: readily. Right. I think there are definitely acceptable reasons to make an accommodation, so that's down here on this part of the algorithm as well. Uh, and it, it, acceptables over here, and then you just write accommodate here. Uh, I. I definitely think there are acceptable reasons. Trauma is one of them. We know that um, victims who are people who are in war situations or displaced persons may have reasons to have an acceptable reason to ask for a request. Uh, again, I think that's important that it be recognized.
1: But I think the difference is that when you try to evaluate the reason for the cause, there's a specific thing, there's a specific trigger that's prompting them to respond this way and have this emotional response. And whether that's right, they went through some sort of incident, some sort of perhaps trauma that's leading them to this, rather than just saying, I just don't want this person, right? And just ascribing whatever negative baggage they've kind of accumulated along the way to this person without a real good reason um, compared to someone that's been through something. And that may just be for a year or two that they have that feeling, but they're just not through that process yet. And so... um, you know, we there should always be a window for some accommodation because people go through crummy stuff sometimes. Yeah.
5: yeah.
2: And, and so I think we have to be very sensitive to the nonverbal. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Who we'll are yes.
1: traumatized yes. cannot
2: articulate. Yes. Particularly during that, you know, for the next couple of years, yes.
3: um, why they feel that way. Yes. Okay. That's
2: why the seeking to understand is so important, rather than judging just the statement that is said. I don't want to see you. This sometimes more than that behind it. Yeah.
3: Okay, just a reminder to support the, uh, pro- the providers involved, and we're going to quickly move on to microaggressions.
1: All right, so we may not um, really have time to delve into this completely because we do want to have a couple minutes for questions, so perhaps this will be more of a tickler of something that can be discussed more in detail at a later point, but we felt it would be a disservice to have these conversations about explicit or implicit biases without acknowledging the thing that happens on a daily basis um, rather than these cases that kind of happen every now and then. And so microaggressions are defined as brief, commonplace slights or insults, invalidations or indignities that are directed towards a marginalized group of people. And there's a video, and we'll probably just show the video and then kind of open this up for um, discussion since we're limited on time. But the video I think explains how this can impact an individual. Let's see if it... Hold on just a minute. Let me make sure the volume. You did test it before, right? Mm-hmm. Go for it. Okay, let's try again. No, we'll again. Oh, just imagine, instead of
4: being a stupid
5: comment, a microaggression is a mosquito bite. <laughs> mosquito bites
4: and their itch are one of nature's most annoying
5: features.
4: If you're only bitten every once in a while.
5: No, where are you really from? Uh, Cleveland. Sure, it gets annoying, but it's not that big deal. <laughs> the problem is that some people get bitten by mosquitoes a lot more than other people. I mean, a <laughs> lot more. Whether
4: it's <laughs> on a date.
5: Oh, your English is so good. Excuse
4: me? Going grocery shopping. You know, everything happens for a reason. Oh. Commuting to work.
5: Still eating a Watching TV. to or
4: just walking down the street with your
5: partner. I couldn't even tell you were gay. Ah,
4: mosquitoes seem to pop up everywhere. You know John. He's like, I not here
5: too.
4: And getting get bit by mosquitoes. So your hair. Multiple times a day. got so your hair. You got your hair. You got your hair. You got your hair. This seems like a huge overreaction to people who only get bit every once in a while. It's just a mosquito. Who cares? Just another angry black one. Of course, beyond just being annoying, some mosquitoes carry truly threatening diseases that can mess up your life for years.
5: Astrophysics? Hmm. Maybe you should try this challenging major. Ah. And other mosquitoes dreams <laughs> that can
6: even kill you. You look like you're up to trouble, okay?
4: I thought, right? So next time you think someone's overreacting, just remember, some people experience mosquito bites all the time.
5: You're all so exotic. Wow. <laughs> and by mosquito bites,
4: we mean microaggression.
1: So, um, in lieu of time, since we have about four minutes left for discussion, we'll leave that there. There are some coping strategies that we can discuss at some point for how to deal with microaggressions. Um, There are different types of microaggressions, and we can talk about how they manifest in everyday life. But just know that even though these explicit cases that we talked about today of someone directly saying something against you may not be happening, that some people in our community may be experiencing these other little things that are influencing how their day is going, how they're interacting with people, how they may be interacting with you. Um, And there's, for the game symposium that's coming up in March, (laughs) (laughs) March. Um, one of the workshops that I'll be leading is how this kind of appears in the clinical setting and how sometimes as attendings we say things um, in a means of giving feedback, but that can be microaggressions and how that's perceived by learners. So I will leave that there so you can all come to the game symposium, and we'll open it up for questions.
5: My sort of question and comment is just, um, I feel like when I think of my own like personal, because that's all we really have to like truly draw on is our personal experiences. And I think like, so why am I happy to have a resident see my kids? Or why am I okay with a male provider? And I think that, um, I guess my question then is, what can we do to help empower patients? Or how can we talk to them to let them know that if at any Point, you do become uncomfortable or if there is something that you don't like that you can feel empowered to like take control of your medical care because I wonder if the people who are worried about what kind of provider they have they just don't know if like they start going down that path if, if like something bad is going to happen to them and so how can we help patients feel more comfortable that, that they are in control of their medical care and that at any point they can let us know if there's something that's, that they feel has gone awry.
1: So, yeah, so I think um, we don't do a great job. I mean, this this a little bit is about branding and messaging, right, about how our institution is structured, and so... As attendings or even as a um, resident, we know all the little safety nets in place for catching things, right? We've been through it. We understand that there are lots of those means which the resident's going to talk to an attending, and that may catch something or, or expand the differential, but patients have no idea about those things. And so... You know, while you don't have everyone watch a five-minute video on medical training, there should be some ways of explaining about how our care teams work and the value of diversity and experiences on those care teams, Um, because goodness knows many of us are very appreciative of having a third-year medical student that just took step one because (laughs) they um, expand our differential, you know, sometimes. (laughs) And... But also that diversity expands to all of the other different demographic diversities that are true as well. So not just in experience, but also in gender and race and ethnicity and those sorts of things. And so, you know, it begs a good question is how could we relate that to patients on an easy to digest manner? Um, You know, I think if we think about general peds, for instance, there used to be more of, you know, this is the care team that this person is on and these are all the other people. But sometimes to patients, I think that may get perceived as, well, if Dr. White's not available, you may see one of these other people, you know, rather than kind of understanding that there's a rationale behind creating these teams and that leads to increased communication. so I think it's something that would be interesting, at least from our perspective in general PEDs, in general outpatient PEDs, to think about more on a group level of how we can have those conversations. But that will look very different um, on the hospital side of things or in the newborn nursery. And so it's kind of environmentally dependent.
0: So I, I clearly we only scratched the surface and, and the, the way that the conversation on case two went um, suggests there be more. Um, maybe more interest and desire to have more conversation in DVM I'm, I'm going to find one of the next Monday faculty meetings at noon to, especially if I can have Julie Andrew, or Stephanie help facilitate. And I think there might be more exercises you wanted to do with us, so, so we'll, we'll, we'll try and schedule another hour um, to continue the conversation if that's all right. Kind of what happened, of with the the, what last... happened with
4: the patient with the headaches?
0: But, uh, well, did you have last
6: that was just more for. I, I heard some comments on the floor with nursing staff as well. Mm-hmm. In both, like skin color, mm-hmm. gender, age, etc. I think uh, are, are the nursing mm-hmm. is the nursing staff involved in that initiative as well because I think they suffer probably even more because they have to stay with the patient mm-hmm. twelve hours. Whereas, yeah, um, we can potentially escape.
1: <laughs> <laughs> escape. I think it is nine o'clock. I want to thank our presenters.